0: turn to psalm 68 if you will sunday we looked at one half of one verse five english words and tonight we have before us 35 verses several hundred words and um, we're going to try to read them all at once i think that the effect will be best if we read the entire psalm together so just follow along if you can and stay with us psalm 68 we'll read all Thirty-five verses it's inscribed for the choir director a psalm of david a song let god arise let his enemies be scattered and let those who hate him flee before him as smoke is driven away so drive them away as wax melts before the fire so let the wicked perish before god but let the righteous be glad let them exult before god yes let them rejoice with gladness Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove, covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalmon. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may shatter them in blood. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, even the Lord, you who are the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts in the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides upon the highest heaven, heavens which are from ancient times. Behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice, ascribes strength to God. His majesty is over Israel and his strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord who daily bears our burdens that we have brought to you even tonight. That to you belong escapes from death, even from eternal death because of our sin. God, we thank you that you're the God who rides on the clouds with power and with might, and you are the God who cares for the orphan and the widow. God, glorious things are said of you in this psalm. And so we pray that you would help us piece it together, understand it, to take it in not only to our minds but into our hearts, and to rejoice in you as David does so magnificently in this psalm. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a quote from the great commentator Matthew Henry. I think you'll identify with him. He says of Psalm 68, This is a most excellent psalm, but in many places the genuine sense is not easy to come at. For in this, as in other scriptures, there are things dark and hard to be understood. I wonder if some of you, as we were reading along, could say amen to that. Some of this is hard to follow. It's a long passage for one thing. Um, We can tell as David is speaking that he's obviously telling a story, but he makes geographical references that we may not know. Uh, He speaks of events uh, in ways that we may not be able to uncover what he's saying. He, He uses figurative language that makes it hard for us to determine who and what and when he's speaking about and so on. It's a very challenging passage, and it's even more challenging because it's written in poetry, not in prose. It's always more difficult to understand poetry than it is to understand prose. For instance, uh, if I said to you, the man trudged down the sidewalk, that's fairly straightforward. Um, But if someone wrote in a poem, slowly his black soul scraped their way across the cracked cement, it's a little more challenging to make sure you understand what's being said. Surely the latter is more beautiful. You can picture it in your mind. But just to say the man trudged down the sidewalk is more simple to understand. And that's the way it is with poetry. That's the way it is with this psalm. David is not writing this in a very simple fashion. There are things like verse 13, the, the pinions of a dove and so on that we wonder, what is he speaking about? Who are these dogs that he's talking about in verse 23? and so on who are the beasts the bulls the calves that he speaks of in verse 30 all of these metaphors all of these images make for a very difficult song what's the story that he's trying to tell well if you can picture yourself uh, trying to listen even to our national anthem uh, you can understand how it could be difficult to understand a story in a poem if you don't know the backdrop right if you were from China and you didn't know how our anthem was written and what the setting was and what, it, what it's speaking about, you would be listening and, and saying to yourself, what are the, the bombs bursting in air? What, what, what are they singing about? And I think that's what happens when we read some of the Psalms and some of the prophets in the Old Testament. They're using language we're not accustomed to, and it's challenging. It's beautiful if we give it the effort, but it's challenging. And so what we need to do tonight is we need to give it the effort. Try to understand what is David after? What is he trying to say? What is the story that he's trying to tell? And I think if we can get at that, there's some lessons that we can learn and some ways that we can rejoice in this long, difficult psalm. Because it's long and difficult, we're going to have to skim through at a little bit closer level to the surface than we might normally do. Um, But we'll try to walk our way through and ask, what is David really talking about? So let me just first ask you to think about the occasion for which David wrote this psalm. Sometimes at the beginning of the psalm, he tells us this psalm was written when so-and-so was doing such-and-such, or when David was in this place at this time. In this psalm, we're not told that, Um, but just looking from what's in the psalm itself, many scholars believe that David wrote this probably when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to Jerusalem in David's days. You may remember that in a previous generation, the uh, Israelites had taken the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and carried it off into battle with them against the Philistines. They used it as kind of a talisman, a lucky charm, to help them win the battle. And they lost the battle because they were relying on the box as though it were a lucky charm rather than on the God whose presence the box represented. They were doing similar to what people do, some people do with crucifixes and so on today, using it as though it were magic. But in David's days, the ark was brought back to Jerusalem, and it was set back up in the tabernacle where it belonged. And the reason the commentators think that this psalm matches that occasion is because in 2 Samuel 6, when they brought the ark back, there was great rejoicing and people in procession and ladies singing and so on. And that seems to match what we read there in verses 24 through 27, the procession that we have there with the singers and the musicians and the maidens beating their tambourines and so on. And so it's, it's probable that David wrote this psalm in order for it to be read or sung aloud on that occasion when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle. But the real question tonight is, what does the psalm actually say? What is David talking about? What is the story he's trying to tell? Well, let me try and give you uh, an outline of what's here in the psalm. It will take several minutes to do that, but let me just try to walk you through it. First, I just want you to see in verses 1 through 4 that we have a, a, what we might call an invocation. An invocation, David is calling out to God and then he's calling out to the people to join with him in this process, in this procession. You can see there in verses 1 and 2, he's calling on God first to arise, to scatter his enemies, to fight for his people. This is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. Israel surrounded by hostile nations and they need God to fight for them. In this case, David may have in mind the Philistines who had taken the ark in the first place. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. And then in verses 3 and 4, David calls upon the people to arise as well, to praise the Lord. Maybe this was meant to be read or sung as the the ark was coming in the gates of the city, or maybe as it made its way down the streets toward the location of the tabernacle. But in any case, David wants the people, verse 4, to sing to God, to sing praises to his name, to lift up a song for him. So the the psalm begins with this invocation, calling upon God and calling upon man to arise to their various roles in verses 1 through 4. And then in verse 5, David begins to remind the people of why they should arise, why they should praise God. And the rest of the psalm is really an explanation of why God's people should praise him. In verses 5 and 6, he tells us that we should praise God, we should sing for joy because of his goodness. If you were to use one word to describe verses 5 and 6, I think it would be goodness, the goodness of God. He is a father to the fatherless. He's a judge for the widows. He makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity and so on. Those are beautiful pictures of God. And I hope that we can read what we read there about the Lord and echo these sentiments and be able to say with David, yes, God is kind, isn't he? To those who are lonely, to those who are needy. He is good. He is gentle. In fact, you might just think, just for a moment about how God has been gentle to you in your need, in your loneliness, whatever it may be. Praise God for his goodness, David says in verses five and six. And then at the end of the psalm, as the other bookend to it, he says that we should praise God for his greatness, his goodness in verses five and six, his greatness in verses thirty two through thirty five. Let me just read you a sampling beginning in the middle of verse thirty three. Behold, he speaks forth With his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel and his strength is in the skies. Oh, God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. He's emphasizing God's greatness now. We should sing praises. We should lift up a song because God is good at the beginning of the psalm and because he's great at the end of the psalm. Powerful, majestic. Two good reasons to praise the Lord. His kindness and his power. And over recent weeks, David has said similar things, and we've talked about God's kindness, his wagon tracks dripping with fatness. We've talked about his power to overcome his enemies as well. So we won't linger on these things, but just note that if we're going to praise God, it's his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his gentleness, and also his power, his greatness, his might, and his majesty. But then, in between those two bookends, and here's where we'll focus our time tonight, in between these two great reasons why we should sing praises to God's name, David tells a story. Verses 7 through 31 are a story. And it is a story that also gives us reason to praise God. Praise Him for His goodness. Praise him for his greatness, and in between those, praise him because of what you're going to hear in this story I'm about to tell you, David says. Sing praises to his name because this is what God has done. It's a story, and this is where it gets complicated. This is where all the difficult portions that I mentioned begin to unfold. Here's where we find the unfamiliar place names. Here's where we find this figurative language that we're not sure exactly what it refers to. Here's where we find difficult to follow sentence structure and so on. It's all in this story between verse 7 and verse 31. And the question is, what is the story that David's telling? What events is he referring to? I think if you just read verses 7 through 31 at a fairly quick pace, as I did a moment ago, you might find yourself getting to the end of the story and going, was that all one story? Does that all fit together? It just sort of seemed like he was going here and there and everywhere talking about these people and they're, they're proceeding into the temple and then over here God is shattering his enemies and over here the dogs are licking up the blood. Is this a really all one story? Well, I think if we walk through it slowly, we'll see that David is telling one story even though it's more difficult for us at a distance of a few thousand years to follow. So let me just show it to you. Notice in verses 7 and 8 that David's story begins in the wilderness. Do you see that? When you went before, forth before your people, you marched through the wilderness. That's the beginning of the story. Now, when were God's people in the wilderness? Well, after they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, right? God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he brought them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And so when David begins his story with God going before his people in the wilderness, that's where we pick up in the Bible, in the book of Exodus. And he's saying, I want you to sing praises to God, remembering how he went before you, verse 7, in the wilderness, in a pillar of fire and in a pillar of cloud. He's reminding those who are reading this psalm of the manna from heaven and the water from the rock that God provided and the protection from their enemies and so on. His story starts in the wilderness. And then in verses 9 and 10, he encourages us to sing praises to God because he brought his people out of the wilderness and into their inheritance. You see that in verse 9. You confirmed your inheritance. He allowed them, verse 10, to settle. Where did they settle? Well, not in the wilderness, but across the Jordan River in the Promised Land. God made it a good land. He sent plentiful rain, we're told, Verse 9, upon that land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. So we see the story start to develop. They're in the wilderness, and now in verses 9 and 10, they are settled. They're in the promised land. And then in verses 11 through 14, David goes on to tell how God drove out the Canaanites from that land. You see it there in verse 12. Kings of armies flee. Verse 14, the Almighty scattered the kings of the armies. And that fits quite well with what we read in the book of Joshua. As God drove out the Canaanites, as Joshua defeated their kings, you can picture the walls of Jericho tumbling to the ground, and Joshua and the people driving out the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and so on. They're in the wilderness, they've come into the promised land, and God is driving out kings and armies before them. And having done those things, now verses 15 through 18, David describes God himself coming to dwell in that land with them. He mentions the mountains of Bashan, but that's not where God dwelt. Verse 15. God actually dwelt at a different mountain. Verse 10, the mountains of Bashan were, were or the mountain of Bashan was a great. It was a fruitful mountain, a large mountain with many peaks. But in verse 16, God chose a different mountain. That's why he says, why, why are these great peaks jealous? Well, because even though the mountain of Zion in Jerusalem was small comparatively, God chose that mountain and he chose, verse 16, to dwell there. Verse 18, it was that mountain, the mountain of Zion in Jerusalem, that God ascended with his freed captives so that they might settle there and he might be in their midst. So verses 15 and eight, 15 to 18, they've settled in the land and God is settling with them there on the mountain of Zion. And having dwelt there, we read in verses 19 through 23 that he daily kept watch over his people. He brought about, verse 20, regular escapes from death. And we might here, I think, well picture the book of Judges. God drove out the kings in the book of Joshua. He dwelt among his people there in the land in Jerusalem. And in the book of Judges, he began to bring about escapes from death and deliverances, which are described here in these verses. He beat back the enemies of his people. He kept his people alive in the land of promise in spite of their often disobedience, all the way down to David's day and even beyond David's day. And so when we read verses 19 through 23 and these deliverances, these escapes from death, these shattering of the head of the enemies, we might think of Samson and the Philistines and how their heads were shattered when Samson brought down the temple of their God. We might think of Gideon and the Midianites and how God destroyed them without anyone having to lift a finger. That's verses 19 through 23. And then, verses 24 through 27 bring us right up to David's day. We've seen God bring the people through the wilderness, into the land, dwelling there, driving out the kings, he in their midst, and him protecting them for hundreds of years. And now, in verses 24 through 27, I think we're right at the point that we begin with, which is the ark has been restored to Jerusalem. And now people are able to make procession into the sanctuary to worship the Lord again. The singers are there, the musicians are there, we're told, the maidens with their tambourines are there, all the various tribes are coming and they're streaming in from the various parts of the land into Jerusalem, into the tabernacle to worship the Lord. And then David tells us in verses 28 through 31, it's not just the tribes of Israel, but that one day other kings will no longer be driven out of the land, as they were in verse 14. But other kings, he tells us in verses 28 through 31, will begin to come into the land with their tribes and their peoples bearing gifts, verse 29. People from Egypt and Ethiopia and so on. And so David tells the story of the people of Israel from the time of the exodus To his own day, and then looking out into the future when the people of Israel will be joined by the nations in worshiping God. And for all these reasons, David, remember, told us in verses three and four, we ought to praise the Lord, we ought to lift up a song to him. He led his people through the wilderness. He brought them into a good land, a land of promise. He scattered the Canaanites before them. He made his own dwelling with them in the tabernacle on Mount Zion. He rescued them from death again and again. He brought them into his house to worship him. And he even welcomed Gentiles to come and do the same. It's a marvelous story that David tells here from the days of the Exodus all the way down to his own day. What he's saying is think of all that God has done in our history. Think of all that God has done from the time He led our people out of the wilderness until this day. Here we are in His tabernacle worshiping Him. Think of all that He's done and verse 3, sing praises to His name. That's really the point of the song. Remember what God has done for the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. Remember how great He is and remember our story. The story of Israel, the story of God's deliverance and praise God's name. And what David says to us at a distance of many, many years is that as we rehearse the story of Israel, we ought to praise his name for what he did in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers are constantly rehearsing these same events. We said this last week, didn't we? If you read the Old Testament and if you read the New Testament, people are constantly coming back and retelling the very story that I've told you tonight. God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, his bringing them into the promised land, and his protection of them and presence with them there. The Old Testament writers and the New are constantly retelling David's same story. But let me say this. There is a story in the Old Testament that should be retold, but we have a story too, don't we? We have a story too, and this is where the rubber begins to meet the road tonight. We have a story. Have you noticed how lots of the hymns that we sing tell the Christian story in the language of the Old Testament? You notice that? They tell the story of the New Testament in the language of the Old. Our hymns often tell the story of salvation by Jesus using the kind of language that David uses here several hundred years before Jesus. For instance, we sing of crossing the Jordan or entering the promised land, don't we? we? We call the church Zion in some of our songs after the hill there in Jerusalem where God dwelt. And there's a reason why we do that. It's not just because it's poetically nice and helpful. There's a reason why we use Old Testament language to describe our story. And that's because New Testament authors use Old Testament language to describe our stories. New Testament authors teach us to tell the story of our deliverance in Psalm 68 kind of terms. For instance, Hebrews 12:22 refers to the church as the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Galatians 6:16 6, teaches us to think of ourselves as the Israel of God. Romans 9 reminds us that those who are truly of Israel are not just. Jews by lineage, but people who are of the faith of Abraham, people who believe in the Son of God. Those people are Israel, the church, Paul says in Romans 9. Now, at first, that may strike us as odd. What are these New Testament authors doing, co-opting the language of Israel to refer to the church? What are they doing? Well, they're teaching us that there's continuity between the Old and the New Testaments, they're teaching us that the Old and the New Testaments are not two separate stories about two separate peoples. They're teaching us that so many of the things that were true of Israel are now true of the church. The Israel of God, as Paul calls it. The physical rescues and blessings that God brought about on behalf of the Jews, Allah, Psalm 68, anticipate the spiritual rescue and blessings that Jesus brought to the all who believe. And so by co-opting the Old Testament language to describe New Testament realities, the New Testament authors are teaching us that the Old Testament is kind of like the opening movement in a whole big Bible symphony. An opening movement with themes that are going to be repeated again and again and again throughout the symphony and are going to come to a climax at the cross of christ so when we read the story of the exodus and we hear the melody playing we realize it's the same melody that's repeated and amplified at the cross of christ or when we hear the strains playing as the children of israel cross the jordan and enter the promised land that helps us to anticipate the music of heaven So it's true, we have our own story. We have a story of redemption and deliverance, but our story is not a different story from David's story. Our story is just the fulfillment of the themes and the patterns that began in the Old Testament. And the New Testament writers teach us to look back into the Old Testament, into Psalms like this one, to see the patterns of our own salvation in seed form. And so what I want to do is go back through that story in verses 7 through 31 and see if it doesn't remind us of our own story. See if we can't hear the same themes playing in the Old Testament as we hear in our own salvation. Surely we've been rescued from slavery too, right? Not slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. We have had our own exodus. And as David describes it here, we too are passing through a wilderness are we not? Verses 7 and 8. I think that's how we might call our sojourn in this sin-sick world. Because of sin, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they were able to enter into the land of promise. And because of sin, we wander in a sin-sick world before we're able to enter in the land of promise. And yet, just as he did for the Israelites, our God goes before us. Verse 7. Our God sins Rains in their seasons, our God protects our souls in the midst of the wilderness. And at the end of our sojourn in the wilderness, is there not, as in verses 9 and 10, an inheritance awaiting us? When we cross over our final river, death, just as when the Israelites crossed over the river Jordan, we will enter our settled rest, verse 10. And all of our enemies, verses 11 through 14, just like theirs, will be driven out. When you die, all of your enemies will be driven away from you, especially the last enemy, death. Do you see? The Israelites' physical experience, as David describes it, in so many ways parallels and anticipates our spiritual journey. The similarities continue, even as we read on in the psalm. Verses 15 to 18, Remember God, for the Israelites selected a city, and he told them to erect a tent. And eventually, when they landed in that city, they put that tent on the hill called Zion. And there God dwelt in their midst. Has God come to dwell in our midst? Well, according to John 1, he has, hasn't he? Jesus is God made flesh. And just as God dwelt in a tent in the Old Testament, John 1.14 uses the exact same language. and says Jesus pitched his tent among us. Jesus tabernacled among us. The Old Testament tabernacle that David is speaking of here, as we've seen before, is a picture and a preparation for the tent of Jesus' humanity in which God dwelt among us. And to carry that picture of God dwelling in a tent among his people further, Paul says that since the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we ourselves are the tent, are the temple of God. Do you not know, he says, that your body is the temple of God? And verse 16, surely the Lord will dwell there forever. It's the same pictures, the same pattern as we see in the Old Testament. And then there's verse 18. You have ascended on high, you have led captive, your captives; captive, you have received gifts among men. Now, that's a picture, as I said, of the Lord ascending the hill of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, as it were, to make his dwelling and leading his captive people up that hill and into that city as well. That's what David is is thinking about in verse 18. But you know, in Ephesians 4, 8, Paul quotes this verse and applies it to Jesus' ascension into heaven. So yes it's true Psalm 68:18 is about the father ascending the hill at Jerusalem and bringing his people to live there but Paul says Psalm 68:18 is also about Jesus ascending into heaven the new Jerusalem and bringing his people there and then the new Jerusalem eventually in Revelation coming back down out of heaven and us dwelling with God forever Jesus has ascended and Paul says it's right here in Psalm 68:18 The same thing that God did physically among his people in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He is ascending and taking his captive people with him. And then in verses 19 through 23, we read about how God brings about escapes from death and bears his people's burdens. And it's easy to see, I think, how we might apply that language to what Jesus did at the cross, isn't it? Didn't Jesus at the cross bear our burdens? And didn't he bring about escapes from death for all who believe? Surely we can see that even in that beautiful verse there, those beautiful verses 19 and 20, we can see a foreshadowing of Jesus. And when Jesus died for us, he destroyed our enemies, as David speaks about in verses 21 and following, especially, as I said, the last enemy, which is death. It's a great parallel here. God sent Joshua to drive out the Canaanites and destroy his enemies. And then God sent Jesus, whose name in Hebrew is Joshua, to destroy the enemy, namely death. And then look at the people in verses 24 through 31, streaming into the house of God. Jews and Gentiles, Egyptians, Ethiopians, and so on. And when you read that, I think it's fairly obvious that the church is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. Isn't it through the preaching of the gospel done by the New Testament church the preaching of Jesus' death and resurrection, the promise that salvation is full and free for all who believe, isn't it in that kind of preaching through the New Testament church that these verses in Psalm 68 come to pass? That the Egyptians and the Ethiopians and all the Gentiles come in, that the kings of the earth bring their gifts to the Lord? It's, it's happened in God's providence through the New Testament proclamation of the gospel. So what am I saying? I'm saying that David had a marvelous story to tell in Psalm 68. God's rescue of his people from slavery, leading them through the wilderness, into the promised land, dwelling in their midst, gathering them together for worship. It's a magnificent story. But as we read the New Testament, these things, we realize, were just the first shadows creeping across the biblical landscape in anticipation of the greatest story of all, that of Jesus and his people, Jew and Gentile, Egyptian, Ethiopian, and so on. When we read the New Testament, we realize that the Exodus and the Promised Land and all these things were just shadows creeping across the landscape, showing that something far bigger than the shadows was coming. A far greater story was yet to be told, and we have heard it, and we get to tell it. And that brings me to the first of three practical applications I want to make and then we're finished. Three practical things to do with what I've said so far about Psalm 68. First is to say that the way that we've dealt with Psalm 68 tonight is, I think, a paradigm for how we should read the Old Testament in general. The way that I've read Psalm 68 tonight is a paradigm for how we should read the Old Testament in general. We know that we're supposed to read the Old Testament looking for Jesus, right? We know that, I hope. Jesus says that all these books in the Old Testament are about him. But let me suggest to you that also, as we've done tonight, we should read the Old Testament looking for the church as well. Let me explain what I mean by that, because it could be misunderstood. We're not looking for the church in that we just open up to a verse and say, well, uh, every place that Abraham set his foot, uh, God was going to give to him. And so if I just sort of walk around the city... Um, and pray, then everywhere that I put my foot will belong to me, or will belong to God spiritually, or, or something like that. You can't just pick something out of there and say, I'm going to apply this to myself word for word exactly as it was. That's not what I mean when I say we should read the Old Testament looking for the church. What I mean is that if Paul calls the church the Israel of God, Galatians 6, if he calls the church the true descendants of Abraham, Romans 9, then our status as Part of Israel should affect the way that we read the Old Testament. We shouldn't read the Old Testament going, well, here's Israel in the Old Testament, but we're an entirely different entity. That's not how the New Testament writers speak about it. Of course, there there are differences between the Old Testament people of God and the New. The civil and ceremonial laws would be one example. But so much of what happened to Israel, as we've seen tonight, parallels our own experience, doesn't it? their story is establishing or has established the pattern for our own story. We're one people. There's a continuity. There's a pattern in the Scriptures that links the Israelites and their experiences with the church and ours. And again, we need to look no further than Psalm 68 to see that Old Testament history repeats itself through Jesus and His church. The things that God did with and for the Israelites, often in physical terms, are the patterns for his dealings with us in the spiritual realm. So we don't read Old Testament events simply out of historical interest so that we can know what happened before Jesus came. It's important, but we read the Old Testament primarily because the Old Testament helps us understand our own salvation. The Old Testament helps us understand our own promised land that we are looking forward to. It helps us understand our own wilderness. It helps us understand our own tabernacle, namely Jesus, and so on. That's why we read the Old Testament. We read it realizing that we are one people with the saints of the Old Testament, even as Psalm 68, 32 reminds us. Even in the Old Testament, God wanted the kingdoms of the earth to sing to him, not just the Israelites, but all the kingdoms. And so what did he do? He took a faithful remnant of Old Testament believers, and he sent to them their Messiah. And then he made many people from the kingdoms of the earth, verse 32, a part of that same remnant, beginning with the Israelites. He made people from all the nations a part of that same family through faith in the Jewish Messiah. It's not that God finished with the Jews and then started with someone else. He just adds us in. That's what Paul says, isn't it? The Jewish nation is like an olive tree, Paul says. And it's not that God cut down the olive tree and planted an apple tree or another olive tree. No, it's that we are grafted into that same tree. We are part of them. Paul calls us the Israel of God. There are not two peoples of God in the Bible. There's one people of God. And so Paul can call this multi-ethnic, multinational church that exists in the world today the Israel of God. And if we are the Israel of God, if we are part of that olive tree, we shouldn't be surprised if the patterns of God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament sound so similar to his dealings with us. We shouldn't be surprised if the way the shoots come out of the branches for them look quite similar to the way they come out for us as well. We are part of Israel, Paul says. So that's one application for how we've handled Psalm 68. We should read the Old Testament looking for the church looking for how God's dealings with Israel foreshadow his dealings with us through Jesus. But now a second application from this psalm. Namely, if David was so keen on telling Israel's story, shouldn't we rejoice all the more to tell our story? In other words, if the Old Testament writers particularly enjoyed retelling the story of the Exodus and the Promised Land over and over again, and they did, If they enjoyed telling this story so much, and if this story, Psalm 68, was just a precursor to, a foreshadowing of the opening theme music for the great story of Jesus of Nazareth, how much more should we want to tell that story? We said this last week, and I'll say it again tonight. The reason why we're constantly singing songs about the cross and the resurrection, the reason why the cross is in every sermon Is because there's nothing better for us to talk about. There's no better story for us to tell. We could go back to the stories of the Old Testament, amazing as they were, but when we go back to those stories, we realize, you know what? Those stories are just getting us ready for the story. So let's make sure we talk about the story every time we meet. We should be like David, always repeating the story of God's redemption for us or of us in Jesus. In fact, let me just ask you. If you find yourself repeating the story very often, I'm not saying you have to write a long poem like David does here. I'm not saying that you have to tell the whole picture of Mark's gospel to someone every week. You tell the whole story. I'm not even saying that you have to find someone with whom you can share the way of salvation from beginning to end each day. But has a story of Jesus, the story so worked its way into the very fiber of your being that some little bit of it comes out in the notes of encouragement that you send to people or some piece of the story finds its way onto your lips when you're having lunch with a friend has it so worked its way into your heart that the songs that tell this story have woven themselves into your mental playlist so much so that the teachable moments with your kids always seem to come back around to Jesus and the cross. When you read the Old and New Testament, it becomes very obvious that the language of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the promised land and the tabernacle tabernacle were woven into the very fabric of Jewish vocabulary. Biblical authors, Old Testament and New, are constantly rehashing this story, referring to this story, using language from this story, using metaphors and examples from this story of God's deliverance in the book of Exodus. It's always coming up. And if these early shadows made such a mark on the vocabulary of God's people, how much more should the reality that those shadows anticipate make a mark on us? How much more should the life and death and resurrection and ascension and return of Jesus weave its way into the very fabric of our vocabulary so that we're always talking about it? Frankly, it ought to be normal for us to talk about Jesus and his love. As normal as rehearsing the day's events at the dinner table each evening. The old, old story of Jesus and his love is the story to which all the other stories are mere shadows and echoes. And so surely we ought to speak and want to tell the story like David does. So two things so far. Hearing David tell Israel's story here in Psalm 68, grants us a paradigm for understanding how Israel and the Old Testament are a shadow of the New Testament, the opening themes of a symphony that are elaborated and amplified and come to their climax in the coming of Jesus. That's one thing. The second thing is that this psalm reminds us of how important it is to tell the story of redemption, the story of Jesus and his love, all the more important for those of us who live on this side of the incarnation. And then finally, by way of application, let me say this. Psalm 68 ought to move us to praise the Lord greatly. Remember, I told you that this was the reason David told this story in the first place, right? David rehashed the exodus and the wilderness and the promised land and the tabernacle and so on. Not simply because he was in the mood at the end of the day to tell a story, sitting whittling wood, right? because he's a storyteller. David is telling this story, remember, verses 3 and 4, so that those who hear it will, quote, be glad. That they will exult before the Lord. That they will sing praises to his name, verse 4. That they will lift up a song. That's why he tells the story. He recounts God's goodness to his people, God's deliverance of his people, so that his people will sing. And again, I simply say, By way of logic, if the Old Testament people could lift up a song, how much more should we? If the people of the Old Testament could lift up a song with the opening movement of the symphony, how much more we who have heard the climax and who have in our hands the sheet music for the finale? Surely we should sing all the more. Now make no mistake, every believing Israelite looked to the same Savior that we look to. They were saved by trusting in Jesus, but they didn't know his name like we do. They didn't know his story the way we know his story. They could only see the story developing as the shadows fell across the Old Testament land. But we live in the reality. We know the whole story. And so I say if Old Testament Israel could lift up a song, how much more should we? The New Testament Israel of God. I want us to stand even now and we'll do just that.